Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. So, this is what defeat feels like. Lena, don't say that. The Metropolitan is a novelty. They're simply curious. Ladies, I know it's hard, but it's time to face the truth. To quote Ecclesiastes, for everything in life, there is a season. And it seems the season of the Academy of Music is drawing to a close. Welcome back to the official Gilded Age podcast for one final time this season. I'm Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies, joined by my co-host Tom Myers from the Bowery Boys podcast. And Tom, I'm really going to miss our weekly chats, you know, where I grill you about labor strikes and what really happened during the opera war. Don't worry, Alicia, labor strikes aren't going anywhere. (laughs) And we will be talking extensively about that opera war in today's episode. Hello, everyone. Yes, this is the season two finale of the official Gilded Age podcast, and it's going to be a biggie. Now, last week, we joined President Arthur at the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge, and this week, we'll be duking it out in the (laughs) opera wars and separating fact from fiction around the opening of the Metropolitan Opera and the downfall of the Academy of Music. Plus, we'll be asking all of our burning questions about the entire second season of The Gilded Age to the executive producer, Gareth Neem. Unfortunately, our Marion, she learns through this, as she learned in the first season, that there is a difference between pragmatic relationships and true love. And she knows that she doesn't love love him. And crucially, she knows that he doesn't love her. He loves his late wife. And she uh, is, I think, by the end of the second season, a wiser, more sophisticated or romantically mature woman than a few episodes earlier. This is season two, episode eight, in terms of winning and losing, written by Julian Fellows and directed by Michael Engler. And we begin with high drama at the Russells. Bertha opens her mail and reads that Mrs. Astor has indeed stolen her Duke and plans to bring him to the opening of the Academy of Music, which would be a huge coup for Mrs. Astor and that opera house. Huge coup. Bertha lets out a, she's a thief, and (laughs) runs down the hall to tell George, she's stolen my Duke. Now, Alicia, where have we heard that line before? Oh, that would be uh, one Mrs. Winterton, who Bertha had stolen him from in the first place. Although, you know, Tom, no one can top Mrs. Winterton on the delivery of my Duke, that witch. While running up a staircase, that's true. (laughs) I'm starting to think that this Duke enjoys all of these divas fighting over him. Mm -hmm. And to make matters worse, Gilbert, the Met director, a few moments later, can hardly contain his glee, uh, telling Bertha that he's leaked out the name of their special guest for opening night, and the tickets have gone in a flash. That means the pressure is really on Bertha to deliver the Duke because the people will go wherever they think the Duke is going. 
Which I love the thought of New York opera goers all just, you know, glued to the latest news about which <laughs> opera house the Duke will be attending. Yeah. Um, and before you ask, no, this did not happen on opening night in 1883. Uh, this was created for the show. Will he be at the Academy or at the Met? The Met, as Agnes says, is that what we have to call the Metropolitan? Which reminds me, Tom, I, I did want to begin all of this by asking you about the Met because, you know, we've talked about how it was organized and, and funded, but where was it back in 1883? Because it wasn't where it currently stands, which is, you know, the place now known as Lincoln Center. No, the original Met was constructed between 39th and 40th on the western side of Broadway, um, which was just a little bit north of the theater scene, which at the time was around Madison Square and Herald Square. And the Met's exterior was designed in the Italian Renaissance style and just, you know, covered in terracotta and figurines and yellow brick, which, you know, along with its mammoth size, gave the Met the not-so-nice nickname the, quote, Yellow Brick Brewery. <laughs> That's not flattering at all. And, no. you know, we've heard about the auditorium with its, it's got the three levels of boxes. Right. Yeah. The Met claimed that in terms of surface area, this audience room was larger than any other opera house in the world. Um, and in fact, as we mentioned before, it had really been designed to show off the audience, right? Especially those in the three tiers of boxes. Yeah, because really they were part of the performance. They were, yeah. And and the auditorium took up so much of the block, you know, that this left very little room for backstage or for the wings. Um, and, you know, those are pretty important for operas, yeah. especially operas with lots of sets. So pretty much from the beginning, the Met, started leaving scenery in the streets around the opera house, you know, sometimes for hours, even in the rain and snow. There was also very little rehearsal space. The chorus sometimes had to rehearse downstairs in Sherry's, which was the restaurant located inside the opera house. Oh, boy. Is, is all of that why it had to move to a new space? Eventually, yes. It was beautiful, but outdated. And even after a 1906 renovation, you know, it just didn't work. So they looked for a new home for decades. And finally, in the 1950s, the Met joined forces with the New York Philharmonic and the New York City Opera and the New York City Ballet in the creation of Lincoln Center, located in the West 60s between Columbus and Amsterdam Avenues. And ground was broken in 1959, and the Met had its final performance in the old opera house in 1966, and then moved uptown to Lincoln Center that fall. And what happened to the, the old opera house, you know, the opera house we see in the show? Well, sadly, the year after the Met moved uptown in 1967, the old building was demolished, and it was replaced by the huge office tower that still stands there today. Well, back in this episode, Bertha discovers exactly who convinced the Duke to go to the Academy, Ward McAllister. <laughs> Not a huge <laughs> shock because, as he reminds Bertha, he's always going to be loyal to Mrs. Astor. Bertha asks him how much the Duke cost to buy, and Tom, Ward replies that Mrs. Astor is giving him more than money, that she will open New York to the Duke and, you know, the whole of America. Yeah, I was struck by how Ward kind of slapped back at Bertha in this scene. Mm. It, it just kind of put her in her place, you know, with a little, I've been at this game rather longer than you <laughs> line, you know, and then and basically tells her, this is what you'll do. You will take a box at the Academy. Mm. Something about it was almost 
menacing, you know, or almost like mansplaining. A hundred percent mansplaining or uh, perhaps wardsplaining. Wardsplaining, yes. <laughs> and then George refuses to give more money to the Met. So, you know, that leaves Bertha thinking about what she can offer the Duke beyond money. More on that in a minute. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, Mamie Fish says that the newspapers are divided on whether the Duke will attend the Met or the Academy. And Tom, first things first. So we know that this particular Duke was fictional, right? Yes, but this is tapping into a very real story. Uh, royalty from the old world did come to America, uh, often looking for a bride with a fortune to help them pay for their old estates back home. And these brides, by the way, were sometimes derisively referred to as dollar princesses. <laughs> and more about that in a minute. <laughs> yep. We also know that both opera houses did really open on the same night. So was there speculation in the press about which house would win? Well, there was chatter about this in the society pages. For example, the Tribune published an article the day before the opening that states, quote, the burden of society's talk during last week related to the opera season. Where to go is this year quite as troublesome a question as what to wear. <laughs> so, yeah, there you have it. It was real. What a burden. Which opera has to attend? Where will I wear my diamonds? <laughs> Too many choices. But then the article continues to describe the rivalry as being chiefly between the managers of these opera houses. And yet it says between the box holders, things are, quote, quite friendly, which isn't really what we see here. Mm, definitely not. And it also makes an interesting point, quote, the majority of the Academy people stayed behind, though a few of the pillars in the old house have hedged, so to speak, by leasing boxes in both houses, enabling them at a considerable cost to go to whichever place has the greater musical or social attraction. Mm, just like we see in the show, you know, like the Fanes and Mamie mm -hmm. Fish, and mm -hmm. there's some other Academy families who also have a box at the Met. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, Gladys wants her suitor, Billy Carlton, to visit the Russell's box at the Met during the opening night, but Bertha says no. Gladys says she prefers Billy to Bertha's Duke, but Bertha, she has other plans. But I also like how we see here Gladys and Bertha, you know, carefully arranging their social visits for the intermissions, right? All of this in advance. After all, the intermissions is when all the action took place. It's, mm. it's very age of innocence. <laughs> the women, of course, would have to stay put in their boxes and they would receive gentlemen callers. And Bertha is making it clear that Billy won't be admitted. Poor Billy. <laughs> but Bertha does show her nicer side a few minutes later by offering two tickets to Mrs. Bruce, who informs Bertha that she'll be inviting boredom. Yeah, so sweet. And hopefully this time they won't get caught in a rainstorm. I kind of think that they liked getting stuck together in that rainstorm. <laughs> yes. And soon enough, you know, the big night arrives, the opening nights of both the Met and the Academy. Everyone is getting ready. Bertha strides down the stairs, resplendent in green. But Gladys is the belle of the ball in purple. And what a train. Mm. In the words of Larry Russell, where's my grubby little sister? She's gone missing. <laughs> And then cut to Mrs. Astor and Carrie Astor and Ward McAllister, who are marching out to their waiting carriage. Um, there is no bounce in their step as Ward asks, are you ready for the challenge? 
To which she responds, it's time to deliver the coup de grace. Mm. And then when we get to the opera houses, I love how different the arrival scenes feel at the Met versus the Academy. You know, the Met is bright, colourful and lively, which juxtaposes with the Academy, which is dark, dim and solemn. As Oscar says, I see all of the skeletons and ghouls are here. They did look ghoulish. <laughs> um, was it was it just my screen or did everybody kind of look green and sort of sickly? Uh, yes. there's, there's a shot of the crowd and like nobody looks like they're happy to be there. Yeah, it's all very dark and dingy. However, I was kind of relieved to see Oscar, you know, at least accompanying his mother. They've had a rough couple of days, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that they can still go to the opera together. Well, I don't think he had a choice, unlike Marion. Oh, yeah, she's at the Met as Larry's guest. and Well, I mean Bertha's guest. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, as Mrs. Winterton is arriving and expecting to enter, you know, the central box, she's instead deposited in her off-center box. And, you know, Mr. Winterton is just not having any of her tantrums He's like, sit down. Sit down. And both Bertha and Mrs. Astor are waiting for the Duke to turn up. We see him getting ready. The tension builds. Where will he go? Mrs. Astor goes into her box and gasp. <gasps> it's empty. And at the Met, Bertha strides in like a queen into the beautiful new opera house, which Tom is full. I love it. I love it. All the drama, you know, as these women step into their boxes. Um, <laughs> Bertha is greeted with gasps and applause. You know, by the way, there's a lot of gasping in this episode. <laughs> well, well, Mrs. Astor is greeted with a kind of like yawn. I mean, I think I actually saw, saw somebody fanning themselves down there. Um, it's quite a contrast. And then Mamie Fish arrives. Uh, you can always hear her coming, <laughs> making noise <laughs> off stage. She she looks around and says, "Is this it?" And she is like, "Out of there!" Because of course she has a box at the Met too. So then we see the Duke getting out of his carriage, and he walks into drum roll. The Met. There's rapturous <laughs> applause and Mamie Fish arrives at the Met just in time after leaving the Academy. Oh, Elizabeth. Mrs. Fish, I didn't think you were coming. I wasn't. But the Academy was a morgue. The fact is, you've won. It can be a mistake to celebrate too soon. <laughs> oh, my dear. American society has been reinvented tonight, and you are at the very heart of it. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen... This is a historic night for New York. Of course, much work and dedication has gone into this endeavor. And I could reel off a list of our benefactors that would keep us occupied until morning. But I won't, <laughs> except to say thank you to Mrs. George Russell, who has been our muse and inspiration. <laughs> Bertha is beaming. She has got a duke kissing her hand. The entire opera house is applauding and gasping her every move. This is her night. Oh, yes. She is truly the queen of this night. She also takes a moment to whisper to George that she was responsible for getting Mrs. Winterton thrown out of the academy. 
I knew it all along. Of course it was her. It had to be Mm -hmm. nobody else. And Mrs. Astor has to accept the truth that she has lost the opera war. And as Ward says, the season of the Academy has drawn to a close. And with that, Tom, let's get into what really happened, you know, off our TV screens in real life. I'm so curious, was it as we see here, was the Academy deserted and the Met full on opening night? Well, I think that the show got to have a little fun with us. Um, the The Academy was not, in fact, a morgue that night, but it actually produced a fine Italian opera. The next day's Tribune carried a review of both performances with the headline, Both Temples of Music Well Patronized, that stated, quote, The new house was filled with a brilliant audience, representing much of the wealth and beauty of New York. The Academy of Music also had a full attendance, and Mr. Mapleson, the director, expressed himself as well-satisfied. Not deserted. (laughs) No, and in another article in The Sun, published on October 24th, Mapleson, the director of the Academy, said that, quote, I missed but few of the familiar faces of those wealthy patrons of art. But the bigger picture here is that both opera directors were reportedly thrilled that the evening meant that New York was now large enough and and culturally rich enough to support two opera houses. I mean, that really was the big story. Okay, so then if if they could support two opera houses, why did the Academy close? I mean, you know, what happened next? Well, the Academy would continue to produce operas for a few more seasons, but they had a problem. The Met could offer to pay more for their stars. And so the Academy's top talent, you know, started drifting up to 39th Street to the Met, leaving the Academy to sort of languish down on 14th Street. And it would present its final opera in 1886, although it would continue on presenting shows, you know, vaudeville and movies later um, until it was demolished in the 1920s. It's sad that that historic building didn't survive. So true. Well, we know that Bertha is partly based on Alva Vanderbilt, who was heavily involved with the Met. So was there a a showdown between Alva and Mrs. Astor over these opera houses? Well, Alva was all over the new Met. I mean, her husband, Willie K. Vanderbilt, and his father, William H. Vanderbilt, had both been on the organizing committee, as we've discussed before. And she had a couple of great boxes on the parterre level, you know, the first level of boxes. Alba had number 28 and 30 near the center. But not the actual center box. Ah, this is funny, Alicia. There wasn't an actual center box on the first level because they needed to accommodate the center entrance to the ground floor, to the orchestra level. So... Mm. So no center box. Sorry, Bertha. Sorry, Mrs. Winterton. <laughs> and was there actually a battle between Alva and, and Mrs. Astor? I don't really think so, or at least not as dramatic as we see portrayed on the show. Remember how we talked last season a lot about Mrs. Astor's role as the gatekeeper of society? Right. She was the one who essentially said who was in and who was out. Yes, and she knew that in order to keep that role, she had to embrace some of the new people, right, and the new things. And that's why, Alicia, the Astors bought boxes in both houses. (laughs) Looking at the diagram of boxes at the Met for opening night, Mrs. William Astor's name was on box nine, just next to William C. Whitney. 
However, in that Tribune article that was published the day before the openings, they speculated that she'll probably be at the Academy. So then tell us, where did the real Mrs. Astor go on opening night? The Academy? The Met? That's the best part. She went to Newport. (laughs) She she avoided the entire drama. I, uh, I spoke to my colleague Carl Raymond from the Gilded Gentleman podcast about this yesterday, and he underscored to me how Mrs. Astor didn't know how it was going to play out, right? And so she got out of town. (laughs) But she would have a commanding place at the Met for decades, um, always arriving late at 9 p.m. and always leaving early at 11. (laughs) My kind of lady. So then both in real life and on the show, the opening night opera at the Met was Faust, which, as Gladys says, is all about a man selling his soul to gain riches and living to regret it, which seems to me like a warning about whatever deal Bertha did with the Duke to get him there, basically, you know, gifting him Gladys. Yes, yes. Back to the Duke. It does seem like we're now drifting into the famous story of Charles Spencer Churchill, the ninth Duke of Marlborough, who would, of course, marry Consuela Vanderbilt, Alva's daughter, in 1895. So 12 years after our story here, but he was a duke and he did need cash and Alva did seek him out for her daughter. Mm-hmm. Just like Bertha on our show. Mm-hmm. So, Tom, I have to know, were you on Team Asta or Team Russell this season mm. or Team Turner? I mean, come on, I would never be able to say no to Mrs. Astor about anything. And yet Bertha is having so much more fun. Um, <laughs> I I don't I think that probably I'm team Mamie Fish. I think yeah. I would be hedging between these these two divas. What about you? Well, I'm team Turner forever. You know, I've got to stay true <laughs> to her. But we see here that the fictional Mrs. Astor has lost this fight. So what do you think is is next for her and for Ward? Well, no spoilers here. But in real life, this was only 1883. They weren't going anywhere. Mm. All right. Now back to the Van Rynes. They're still reeling over the news of Oscar losing their family fortune to Maud Beaton and have told the downstairs staff they'll have to look for new jobs. The only member of the staff that doesn't seem too worried about all that is Jack because he has received his patent. Oh, man. And when this good news kind of jumped across the room downstairs, everybody erupted with cheers. Um, It was really a burst of, you know, much needed happiness. For everybody, well, for everybody except Armstrong, of course. Of course. All right, so let's talk now about the fight for the black schools to stay open. Arthur Scott gets wind that the date of the Board of Education's meeting has been switched without their knowledge, and he rushes over to his home where Sarah Garnett, Dorothy, Peggy, Mr. Fortune, and the other volunteers are getting all of their documents ready. Yeah, he races in and yells, they've tricked us, and... Within 20 seconds, that entire group has packed up their papers and rushed off to the school board meeting, uh, which is in progress. And Sarah's group demands to know why the three black schools are being closed when they have applications for more students and teachers than they can accommodate. Well, luckily, they managed to save two out of the three schools from closure. And now they also know how to deal with this if it happens in the future. And Sarah Garnett says that they should all be glad. But Tom, can you tell us what happened in real life? Well, it's actually quite similar. Um, In real life, the state legislature passed a law to abolish these, quote, colored schools by 1884. And it was signed by Governor Cleveland. 
although the governor also signed a special bill that allowed two of the black schools in New York City to continue operating largely as they had been. And that included Sarah's Colored School Number 4, which became Grammar School Number 81. And the New York Times reported that by 1888, at least some white students were enrolled at Sarah's school, although enrollment had dropped. But this, according to Sarah, was largely due to the fact that many were now just attending schools that were closer to their own homes. So they just didn't need to travel across the city to get to her school. That's right. And her school closed in 1894. And she would move over to the other historically Black school that was now called Grammar School 80, which remained open until about 1900. By the way, I love the scene back at the Scots house, you know, after all of this success, when it became clear that Arthur has, as Dorothy put it, done well today. Mm. I just, I thought it was so sweet, you know, to see Dorothy and Arthur just kind of giggling, you know, and just very loving. It felt good. Yeah, you're right. I mean, he's he's earned her trust back again. And that was a really lovely moment between them. And, you know, just talking about Peggy for a minute, she it seems like she's taken on her mother's advice about finding a life of her own and not getting involved with the married T. Thomas fortune because, Tom, she's decided to leave the globe. Yeah, and this big revelation happens while the two are strolling in Central Park. And Fortune tells her that he'll hate to see her go, as will all the others. But she is determined, and she she drops another one of this episode's big philosophical lines. She says, me too, but bad timing shapes our lives. Oof. And then she walks off, I mean, clearly sad, but, but also it seems like she is now free from this temptation. Absolutely. And you know, there's another woman who wants a life of her own, Marion. She thinks a lot about Dashiell and whether she wants to be engaged to him, whether she wants to be just a wife and not a teacher anymore, and whether he truly loves her or if he's still in love with his deceased wife, Harriet. And after a night of thinking, she comes to a decision. I cannot marry you. What? I can't be your wife. It wouldn't be right. I'm sorry. But I thought you loved me. I thought you loved Francis. I do love Francis. And I am so sad if this is disappointing for her. Then why are you doing it? Because I don't think we want the same things. Or even the same life. I want a life like everyone else's. But I don't. Or not yet. I, I want to do some good in the world before I settle down. I don't understand. No, he doesn't understand, which is the whole point. I -hmm. mean, he's such a great guy, but uh, when he came over earlier, you know, to visit and generously offered to pay for the entire wedding, he, of course, called Marion Harriet. And Mm -hmm. did you see Marion's face when he said that? That was that was the moment that I knew it was over. Yeah, and Ada noticed it too. So, you know, she wasn't surprised by Marion's decision. I loved Ada's reaction and how she kind of read the whole scene. You know, she she saw Dashiell stumble out of the parlor without Marion. She didn't react like I would have, you know, like, what happened? You know, she just, <laughs> Ada just kind of like smiled serenely, you know, and, and said, well, I suppose that means you've told him. She always knew, didn't she? Nothing gets by Ada. 
But Agnes's reaction to Marion's reveal that the engagement is off was was quite unexpected. Yeah, this one took me by surprise when she said, even I don't expect you to marry to please me. Mm. That was just, it wasn't what I was expecting. But of course, remember, Agnes had a miserable marriage. So she's probably more sympathetic than we give her credit for. Although she does offer Marion some advice, or perhaps it's a, a warning. Now you have two strikes against you, Marion. The second more public than the first. You can't afford another. And then, remember, time passes quickly. Don't throw your life away. Mm. That one really stopped me. I mean, there's some real life coaching in this episode. <laughs> and and this it clearly sticks with Marion, too. Um Marion, who has grown so much more independent and determined over these two seasons. She really has. And now, Tom, that means Marion is fancy-free, single, and available to kiss Larry Russell. Finally! (laughs) Finally! Uh, In a nod to season one's finale, Marion and Larry are crossing over 61st Street from the Russells to the Van Rynes. They climb the stairs. They chat about being friends for life. She rings the doorbell. He quickly frowns as he realizes that he's got to act quick. (laughs) He steps up and she falls in and they kiss. Finally. Finally. I was so excited. I'm all for Larry and Marion. Larian, shall we say? Larian. (laughs) (laughs) Long live Larian. But moments later, because we haven't had enough breaking news, Larry drops the bombshell that he wants to go into business with Jack. Mm. And this results, I think, in the best jaw drop of the season when when Jack's eyes bulge out and his his jaw drops several inches. So it's very well played by Ben Allers. Yeah, he has a, a very expressive face. So, you know, Marion is rushed inside where Ada has been waiting to share some big news with her and Agnes. And we've seen throughout this episode how hopeless Agnes's financial situation is. She has no choice but to sell the house. She has to put her clothes away and possibly wear baggy clothes if she can't keep a lady's maid. Yes, we have watched, you know, this new financial reality sink in with Agnes um, and and the others, including the staff. And we should mention that we've seen Peggy show sympathy for Armstrong, Mm -hmm. which then inspires Agnes in another touching moment in this episode to ask Armstrong to stay on. It's a nice scene, although Armstrong always kind of walks that line of, receiving our pity and enraging us at the same time. (laughs) That's true. But Ada's big news is that Luke Forte, her recently deceased husband, left her a huge amount of money. Surprise, surprise. His grandfather made a fortune in textiles, a business which has kept going, kept adding wealth, and Luke has barely touched it. So that means Ada is rich. And I'm wondering, do you think this is what Luke meant when he told Ada that she was Agnes's equal? Because, I mean, really, she was a married woman and she was a wealthy married woman at that. So clever Mm. and so cryptic and so (laughs) surprising. I mean, power dynamics are spinning around the Van Ryn parlor (laughs) And, and, and Bannister enters. The whole staff has been up all night and he gets the bombshell news from a Clearly delirious Agnes. Mrs. Forte has inherited a sum from her late husband, so we will not be moving and all of your jobs are safe. (laughs) Hallelujah. (laughs) And if I may say so, what a relief. (laughs) 
<laughs> Please feel free to tell them downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Miss Ada. Yes. Is that your wish? Why, yes. Please tell them downstairs. Thank you, Bannister. Yes, Mum. Thank you, Mum. This was a fantastic scene. I mean, you see the looks of realisation slowly make their way across the faces of Agnes, who is confused, Ada, Mm -hmm. who is thinking through what this might mean, and Marion, who is just positively gleeful. Well, it seems like Bannister caught on quickly. Yeah, and Agnes isn't about to let go that easily. She says, well, I still own the house. And I mean, yeah, that's true. She does. Yes, but only because she now doesn't need to sell it. Yeah. And and plus, as Marion says, yes, but Aunt Ada will be paying their wages. Mm, I really liked how Ada cryptically says, things may be a little different in the future, Agnes, but I'm sure we'll work it out. <laughs> and as Ada smiles, you know, assessing her new unexpected power season two comes to a close what a final five minutes there are so many questions so many delicious possibilities so many unexpected twists what will it mean to have ada in charge oh we're gonna have to wait to see and perhaps you know we can get some clues from our special guest our final episode for this season of the official gilded age podcast continues after this break and we'll be breaking down the entire season with all of that drama with the executive producer of the gilded age gareth neem stay with us I love New York. I love everything about it. Good. (laughs) I'd hate for us to have to say goodbye. We'll never say goodbye. (laughs) We know far too much about each other's lives not to be friends forever. (laughs) Don't open the door, Jack. Don't (laughs) open. (laughs) Let him kiss. Tom, we've been waiting for this since season one. What a (laughs) build-up. Well, we will definitely have to ask our guest about that in a moment. We are so lucky to be joined now by the executive producer of The Gilded Age, Gareth Neem. Gareth is an acclaimed television producer who worked with Lord Julian Fellows to create the highly successful TV and now film series, Downton Abbey. Following their work on Downton, he and Julian Fellows turned their attention to America with The Gilded Age. Over his career, Gareth Neem has won BAFTA awards, Emmys, Golden Globes. He was also the recipient of the Producers Guild of America's David L. Wolper Award and has received an Order of the British Empire for his services to drama. Gareth Neem, it is a pleasure to have you back on the podcast and as our special final guest this season. What an honour. And I'm a big fan of the the show from the first season, so uh, glad to be back. Thank you. We're honored and we're so happy to have you here. Um, And before we get into everything that happened to the characters over the past eight weeks, I would just love to take a step back for a moment and talk about your job as the executive producer of The Gilded Age. Can you talk about your job? Um, How do you work together with Julian on the show? Well, I guess we we should go back to how this all started. And of course, uh, Julian and I were working on many seasons of Downton Abbey. We turned it from a, a TV series to a film franchise quite successfully, I'm pleased to say. But um, back, if I backtrack 
you know, some years to probably midway through the run of Downton, we could see what a massive success the show was in the United States, much more than had it ever been predicted by us and everyone, I think. So we were aware that there was a whole American angle to this story. And in fact, Julian had written um, a pilot script many, many years ago uh, of a show about the Vanderbilts. And that um, series didn't progress. And I think it was rather limited by the fact that it was a, based on a true story. It was the story of the Vanderbilt. So obviously it didn't leave room for fictional invention. And that project never proceeded. But I think the idea was there. And um, so we talked about pursuing uh, you know, a project about New York's g- Gilded Age. We had to really wait for Julian to finish writing all of the episodes of Downton. So the show, was, as, an, as a concept, it was parked for a long time. And he wrote the pilot script for Gilded in 2018. And it had a few stops and starts and uh, was eventually uh, set up at HBO. So I was really, I was heavily involved in developing the series with Julian in the first place and setting it up at HBO. And what's my working relationship with him? I suppose uh, I might suggest I'm his editor. He's the the writer. I'm the person who gets to read his stuff first and say, yes, yes, no, maybe, you know, and all of this, and hopefully give constructive feedback that helps to build the stories into uh, what they are. What is it like then being two Brits who are producing a show shot in America for essentially American audiences about American history? Do you think it does take that outsider perspective to capture the, the kind of the real truth and the nuance of what was happening during the Gilded Age? Well, uh, yes, I think um, I think there is a real asset to that. I'm sure it's the case that large numbers of people watching this show are learning about 19th century New York society, the black elite, the aristocracy of New York. They are learning about this for the first time. It's taken outsiders to come in and say, well, if you love Downton Abbey, you have your own version of it. It all went on here, and it has very many of the same hierarchical customs and etiquette and all of the things, the attention to detail and the social commentary that Julian Fellows writes so eloquently and beautifully, that analysis, that that social observation. We know this went on all around the world, different sort of customs. And it's particularly interesting, I think, how the American upper middle classes and then their kind of equivalent of the aristocracy tried to be as European as possible and model themselves. And we see this all the way through the show, how Bertha, you know, she's plundering the grand houses of Europe for her own residence and and the manners are all based on on English manners and should a meal be served in a French style or an English style and and you know that's really fascinating however the bit that of course there's a whole other side of american history that we were less familiar with which is more the sort of social history of america the very you know the racial history of america which you know we're less familiar with and that of course is where you know we've worked with brilliant partners that we've come to meet over the last few years who've given us so much you know, context and advice. And I love the way that those stories are interwoven with the elite stories of New York. And it, it gives this remarkable balance. Yeah, absolutely. And we just spoke with Dr. Erica Dunbar, you know, about all of the research that went into that. How does a show like this give you license to invent some characters, include some other, like this season we got to meet Booker T. Washington, you know, and Sarah Garnett, historical figures, and then others who are just based on sort of an amalgam of Gilded Age personalities. On Downton Abbey, the main characters are all fictional, but every now and again, we would meet a real character from 
uh, history. And that really helps anchor the stories. It places them in a context. And we've used quite a similar device here, although I think actually we've used way more real characters from history than we did on Downton. Obviously, it gives us the best flexibility with the story, telling that our principal characters are all fictional. So they, they can be amalgams. George is an amalgam of about two or three different uh, robber barons, and Bertha is an amalgam of at least two society uh, ladies. But by having characters like, you know, a character, a supporting character like Ward McAllister, he can be a real character from history and really anchor, or, you know, Mrs. Astor and that, you know. So they're more sort of supporting characters of our, the real heroes and heroines. But yeah, I mean, there's, you know, I, for example, I knew nothing about the Emily Roebling story uh, until Julian showed me a, a first outline of the ideas for that episode. Immediately I looked it up and I thought, this is a really fascinating story. It's completely contemporary, 2022, 23, of our times. It's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating idea. And as the character says, you know, nobody can know that there was a, wo- a woman engineer behind this bridge because no man would ever walk along it. And uh, I, I just think you know, this, these are stories that are real stories that are as good as anything you could invent and feels very true to us. Yeah, and there's also a lot of real events being woven into the fictional events. Uh, this season we see, you know, a lot of battles. We have the the unions versus the robber barons. And then, of course, you have Bertha versus Turner and Armstrong versus Peggy, the Board of Education versus the black schools. So would you say that all of these conflicts that we see in the show, uh, a result of the amount of change that was happening during the Gilded Age. Yes, I mean it was a, the you know the industrialization of the nation uh, was of course what allowed America to overtake Great Britain as the sort of dominant power of the world. It may have been one of the most important periods of modern history. You know that huge growth of industry and and spreading west across the the nation, the railroads, the steel, the shipbuilding um, created these wealthy individuals, created the need for the workforce on a level that had never been seen before, and thus the trade union movement um, is born of that. So, uh, yeah, it's absolutely um, fascinating era, and those stories are. They're so contrasting, aren't they? I love the way we go from mm. the Henderson meeting, the, the union meeting, straight into uh, the opera wars. You know, they're, they're all moments of conflict and very, very different ends of the scale. Yeah, that's always the fun part for us on the podcast too, pivoting from, you know, one moment to another <laughs> in a way that works. I mean, another element that we have to have and that you certainly gave us this season is romance, although several of those didn't really work out in the long term. I mean, I'm thinking Ada and the Reverend Luke Forte, um, Dashiell and Marion, and of course, Oscar and Maud. But could we talk about Dashiell and Marion for a second? Alicia and I have been talking about this sort of sense of unease that we felt with their relationship, really, you know, as the audience from the beginning. Was that intended? Was it, was it intended that they feel just a little bit off and were we never really supposed to like this setup? I think it contrasts with the first season where she has followed her heart and made a great big mistake. She, you know, she spends much of season one telling her aunts that she's right and they're wrong, as young people usually do. I think she's, a, she's hurt and ashamed at the end of the first season. And we, we meet her in the second season where a perhaps slightly more measured Marion is prepared to take advice. And I think all young people have most young people have been in these positions, haven't they, where where they're trying to navigate relationships and that sometimes you know best and then sometimes you are open to the opinion of others. 
be that friends or, or older relatives. And I think she's she thinks I, I did it on my own and I got it spectacularly wrong. And here is this perfectly eligible husband. So I think to you know in the eighteen eighties, that potential match wouldn't have seemed unusual. And I think there were fewer marriages made for love then than they were in the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, our Marion works out. She learns through this, as she learned in the first season, that there is a difference between pragmatic relationships and true love. And she knows that she doesn't love, love him. And crucially, she knows that he doesn't love her. He loves his late wife. And mm. uh, and she uh, is, a, I think, by the end of the second season, a, a wiser, more sophisticated, more romantically mature woman than a few episodes earlier. Yeah. And you, as you mentioned, there's that contrast with Aunt Agnes, right? And their views on marriage and Agnes even sort of in that terrible scene in the botanical garden, you know, saying, yes, I do. She basically said, I do for Marion <laughs> yeah. right, from, from, from the audience. But then by the end of this episode, you know, when Agnes has gotten the news that Marion has broke off the engagement, she surprised me. I mean, she said, I, even I don't expect you to get married to somebody you don't, you don't love. So maybe they're actually closer to the same yes. viewpoint. And, uh, and, and Agnes, of course, has uh, gone on a huge journey across these eight episodes. Mm. Um, you know, that relationship with her sister has sort of gone full circle. I think particularly over, over the marriage, you know, that sense of selfishness and a sense of abandonment. Um, but that wonderful moment when she does, of course, arrive at the church um, and will ultimately support her sister and is the staunchest supporter of her at all, of, of all, uh, when uh, Luke is dying. Yeah. And of course, she has her own story. I mean, she has her own backstory with her own marriage. Exactly. Yeah. She did yeah. marry somebody she didn't love. Yeah. yeah. Someone pretty awful, it sounds like. We talked about the romance that didn't work. Let's talk about the one that did work. I mean, the payoff here, finally, after two seasons, you know, in the last, almost the last scene, we see finally Marion and Larry kiss. Um, we've been really hoping for this since the end of season one. Um, did did you sort of, how do you construct that? Do you tease the audience a little bit without giving too much away throughout the whole thing and set it up? It's the opposite of Dashiell, really. I mean, we we want this to happen. Well, the, the, this is a sort of house style that Julian and I have used before. And in fact, I, if you remember the early seasons of Downton Abbey, you had the whole Mary Matthew thing. We managed to keep that going for at least two seasons. Yeah, two, it was two seasons before they, he proposed to her. So what, what you said, Tom, about Larry and Marion and, you know, the idea that everyone th- thought from the beginning, this is this is actually the ideal partnership. Well, of course, that's exactly what we want to hear the audience say. We want that the sort of tension, the, the sexual romantic tension that comes from these characters. If we've designed it right and if we've cast it well, that the audience are picking up these um, things. Just as in real life, we notice our friends who <laughs> all marry the wrong people and miss out on the people that they should have married. You know, we see this everywhere we look. This is a great thing. It's so fascinating about humanity. So yeah, it's great that the audience think they should get together and we'll have to see in a third season maybe what you know what does happen between them. You give this to us in the very last scene of the last episode. <laughs> yeah. We have to now wait have a to year wait. now? Yeah. <laughs> it's like there's a certain bittersweet quality to this, yeah. right? And when that we have to wait. Well, um, that's serious television, I suppose. <laughs>
Well, uh, Peggy also had a whirlwind of a season. You know, she went through a lot this season. And I know that Danae Benton was quite involved with her character last time. Do you work with some of the cast, especially now that they are so uh, familiar with their characters this season? That's the real joy of second seasons compared to first seasons because you know you usually have most of the scripts of the first season done before you start because you have to have a roadmap but those are just words on a page nothing actually has been crystallized nothing exists so the characters as written in the first season are inventions and by the second season of course they're fully formed characters and performances that then informs the way a second series and and all future se- seasons are are written and the character becomes a bit of the actor and a bit of what the writer originally conceived of and they evolve and uh, you know ultimately the individual actor is the principal custodian of those of those characters and uh, you mentioned Danae and yes I mean she's formed a great bond with Erica Dunbar and they discuss these historical stories get the context right um, so yeah they, they are involved I mean I, it would be wrong to say that it's in any way written by a committee of actors and the actors themselves would be the first to say that is not how it happens but there is this sort of shared ownership between the writers, producers and the actors of, of those characters. And we all uh, shape them in, in those different different ways. But it, the job of each actor is just that one character and to be the guardian of that character. Well, an- another character who, who finally came into his own this season was Jack or John, rather, um, who really developed becoming an inventor, no less, and is going into business with Larry Russell. Can you tell us about Jack's journey this season? The very heart of the show is obviously the, you know, the, the, the social manner and the social behavior of New York society. That's the very heart of it. But we are trying to depict a much wider uh, impression of, of America at that time. And of course, the Jack story is another one of the big American dreams and the big American stories. He's got nothing. He's a, been a poorly paid, poorly educated young man, but he's got ambition. And so that idea of a young man who has an invention and can make something from his invention and come from nothing to be a man of, a man of industry is a different story from George's, but nonetheless absolutely at the heart of of the American story. Yeah, it's the American dream, really, isn't it? That you can make right. anything of yourself. Right. And speaking of, you know, at the end of the the big opera war this season, Mrs. Russell has beaten Mrs. Astor. She's had the triumphant opening of the Met with the Duke in her box. And, you know, Mamie Fish tells her, American society has been reborn tonight and you're at the very heart of it. So what does this mean for Mrs. Astor and the old guard moving forward? You know, Bertha's journey ends the first season as a member of society and ends the second season as really the head of society. So we we have seen her ascent now and we will see um, Mrs. Astor's you know, further decline as the campaign between these two teams uh, continues. So what has changed for Mrs. Russell? You know, what, what could be next for her maybe? Well, I, I think with power comes responsibility. And when you get to the top, there's only one other place to go. So um, uh, she'll, she'll no doubt have some ups and downs. <laughs> <laughs> have to <laughs> wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, across across 61st Street over at the Van Ryan's house, there's been a lot of drama, right? Agnes has seen her fortune wiped out and Ada, of course, the devastating loss of her husband. But then she comes into her own surprise fortune by the end of this episode. And, you know, watching this one thing happen, watching the loss of fortune and the gaining of another, it's kind of like the Gilded Age world that we knew here sort of spun and realigned unexpectedly with Ada at its center here. Even Bannister defers to Ada at the end of this episode. Can you talk about that twist, building that twist, and uh, kind of what just happened? Well, again, these, these the complete vault farce in a story, uh, you set up a world and then you completely uh, turn it on its head, as you say, and, and that's what we have here. It, it's classic Julian Fellows. The moment you refer to, which is that Bannister immediately understands that this means effectively his boss has changed because you have to follow the money. Of course, it's, it takes a little longer for it to sink in with Agnes. She doesn't really think necessarily that anything particularly will change, but Bannister understands immediately. And it's, all, it's almost like an election, isn't it? The moment that the election is is won or lost, you know, the, the loser has to concede defeat. Well, that, that's how things Hopefully. used to work anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, um and I just, I think, yeah, it's not, it's not just the dynamic between the two sisters. It's then again, it's, it's classic fellows. It's the, the outsider. It's the servant's point of view who gets that, gets there quicker and, and, and sees how uh, all the rules have suddenly changed. And I think it's the most, I mean, you, 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 you like the, the Marion and Larry hook. Well, that's great, but I happen to love this, <laughs> this because how they will, how they will get out. And it, and it means, you know, the great thing for serious television, when you want to run to multiple seasons and how do you keep this thing going? How do you keep it interesting? How do you stop things getting repetitive, which is always the challenge. And if you throw something completely upside down, of course, it just, if you think about it, the scenes to play between Agnes and Ada, they all now have to be completely different. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But again, we're going to have to wait to see what happens next. <laughs> Not fair. Gareth, could we speak for a moment about Maud Beaton? Mm-hmm. Because she she actually made us feel sorry again for, for Oscar Van Ryn, which is not that easy to do, but she did. <laughs> um, could you tell us about the inspiration behind Maud and, and developing this storyline? There were f- several female swindlers who might have served as inspiration, but um, tell us about Maud. It's a sort of mainstay of Julian's writing that when somebody is down on their luck, they tend to be really down on their luck. He gets uh, beaten up. He decides he has to, I've got to get my life. I have to have a mainstream, normal life. I need to have a wife and I need to have a place in society. So Gladys is, and we already know from season one that he's got interest in that direction. So he tries to follow that through. That goes nowhere. And he accepts that and then meets Maud and thinks she could be absolutely perfect. And then that of course, goes wrong as well and leads, you know, of course, by the end of the season to the loss of um, the family's entire wealth. So uh, it's that sense. I mean, we saw it with the character of Lady Edith, for example, in Downton, who for multiple seasons, everything went wrong, every single, because there are people like that in life. Fortunately for Edith, things do go right for her by the, the, the final season or so. And thus it is with Oscar as well. I mean, it's, he, he's not getting a break yet, but, but maybe he will eventually. Are you going to give him a break in season three? <laughs> notice notice I said maybe he will get a break. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you look back over season two, I'm wondering, like, what are you most proud of or what do you hope to leave audiences with? So I'm really pleased with the show that Julian and I have been able to open 
the eyes of you know a, a, a mainstream broad American domestic audience into the story of where you guys came from and and how how modern America was built. The other big difference between Downton and and Gilded Age is that Downton is all about the dying of the light. It's about the end of an age and the end of an era. The Gilded Age is a show about the future. It may actually be set deeper in history than obviously Downton is a 20th century show. This is a 19th century show. But, but Gilded feels far more modern uh, than Downton is. Downton has motor cars and telephones and things that we don't have in Gilded Age. But Gilded Age is in New York City at, at its biggest period of change and revolu- industrial and political revolution and um, or societal re- revolution. The great thing is that we've we've depicted it on screen. We brought awareness to it. And as a lover of history, like you guys, you know, I, I just love telling these stories. And that's that's the that's the piece I'm most happy about. Thank you for creating that world and uh, bringing 19th century America to life. And thank you for joining us. And and congratulations on completing season two of The Gilded Thank Age. you. Well, it, it was a joy to do. And it's always a great pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. It is always so interesting talking to Gareth. Mm-hmm. And I now feel, Alicia, actually <laughs> more excited than ever about season three. <laughs> where, oh, where are they going to take these many storylines? I know. I can't wait to see what happens with Bertha after her opera success and how mm. Larian develops. <laughs> Well, judging from what Gareth just told us, um, the series will probably continue to surprise us. What a season this has been. What a roller coaster. I just, I feel so lucky to have watched it all and talked it all through with you, Alicia. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's been so much fun to talk about operas and and Agnes with you, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) So many opera boxes to talk through. And both of us hope that you all enjoyed your trip through the Gilded Age Season 2. We loved having you with us. Yes, we did. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. This has been the official Gilded Age podcast, written, hosted, and produced by Alicia Malone and me, Tom Myers. Our supervising producer is Andrew Pemberton Fowler. Our consulting producer is Grant Rudder. Our editor is Trey Booty, with special thanks to Michael Gluckstadt and Savon Slater from HBO, and Hannah Pedersen and Amy Machado from Pod People. Listen to the official Gilded Age podcast after each episode airs on Max or wherever you find podcasts. Want even more extra content and behind-the-scenes moments from the Gilded Age? Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Gilded Age HBO to join the conversation today. The official Gilded Age podcast is a production of HBO in partnership with Pod People. Pod People. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. <laughs>